Well, good morning, family. It's wonderful to see you all here. If you would, go ahead and make your way back to your seats. You can go ahead and break out your Bibles as we'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to finish up our study on 2 Timothy this morning. But of course, before we get into any study, we need to go to prayer to our Lord and our Savior. So please allow me, if you would, bow your heads to lead us in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you so much that we can come to this place, that we can worship you. That we have assurance through your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you raised on the third day, that we can be so thankful for that and that alone. So Lord, we just pray, would you send your Holy Spirit here this morning? Would you just open our hearts and our minds, our ears and our eyes to see what you have prepared? And would you hide me behind your cross so that every word that I preach and every word that our congregation hears would just drip of our Lord Jesus Christ, that that's what they would see every moment, that that's what I would proclaim every moment. And Lord, help us as we embark on this journey, as we embark on this study to understand why Paul's last letter, that this is what he chose, is to proclaim your word. Help us to understand why. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned this morning, we are going to finish our study on 2 Timothy chapter 4. For you see, over the past few weeks, really, we've been uh, breaking down the Apostle Paul's final letter before he's executed in Rome. In fact, we saw how in chapter 1, Paul taught us we have to guard the gospel. Chapter 2, we were told how we must suffer for the gospel. And in chapter 3, we saw how we must continue and endure in the gospel. But now, as we arrive in chapter 4, we're going to see how the Apostle Paul tells us we have to proclaim the gospel. And I want you to stop and think about that for a second. I mean, here Paul is. We know that this is his last letter and that he's in a cold, damp, rotting prison cell in Rome. And yet his main concern for Timothy, and really for all of us as Christians, is to proclaim the gospel. And I mean, as good as we know it is to proclaim the gospel... I can't help but ask the question, why, out of everything he could have possibly said at the end of his life, his last words, would he choose to say to Timothy to preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel? Why did he hinge it all on this principle? Let's find out, and let's start by reading our first few verses in this chapter. So again, break out your Bibles, and we're going to read verses 1 through 5 together. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, Endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. All right, let's pause here and go over these first few verses, because really, we, we got a lot to unpack, and a majority of our time this morning is going to come for these first five, well, really these first eight verses. So let's go ahead and get started, because the first thing that we see here is that Paul states to Timothy, I charge you to preach the word. He doesn't tell Timothy, I'd like you to possibly preach the gospel. 
You know what, Timothy, if the climate around you is just right, and if you don't think people are going to be offended by what you say, or they're not going to be hurt, yeah, then maybe consider preaching the gospel. No, he tells Timothy in the most passionate way that he can, I charge you, preach the word. In fact, the Greek word for charge is diamortromai, diamortromai. And it, it has this idea of having legal connections and testifying under oath in front of witnesses or a judge. So in other words, what Paul is doing here is he's telling Timothy that he's testifying to him under oath in front of the greatest witness. Better yet, in front of the greatest judge, Lord Jesus himself. Timothy, you have to proclaim the gospel. And why was Paul so passionate about Timothy testifying, or about him testifying to Timothy to proclaim the gospel? Well, because he knew that Christ's return his kingdom, it was imminent. It could come at any time. So in essence, he's telling Timothy, prepare, prepare right now, prepare others, proclaim the word. And family, I want to tell you right now, the only way that you can be prepared for Jesus' return, for his arrival, is to be living out and proclaiming the gospel yourself. Let's take it up a notch by giving a few examples to help put that in perspective. You see, during Paul's day, during the Roman Empire, I could guarantee you that if and when the Roman emperor went out to go visit any town, any province, city, whatever you may have it, that place he went to visit was completely prepared for his arrival. It was decorated, the streets were cleaned, it was ready to rock and roll. If we translate that to modern day, I'll ask you the following question. If your parents or grandparents came to visit your home in the next few hours, would you leave it as it is right now? Or would you be rushing home to make sure that sucker's prepared? Yeah, you clean it up, right? Because we all know mama's taught us better than that. And sadly, I know that example strikes home because we just went through this through Thanksgiving, right? I mean, we, we cleaned it up. We made everything look immaculate before our guest arrived. And likewise, likewise, you see what Paul is doing here is he's communicating to Timothy and really all of us today that we too need to be prepared for Jesus for his arrival, for his kingdom, which is imminent. And we're called, as a result of that, to make the gospel the center of our lives. It's to be the center of what we live and what we preach. Now, of course, if you're looking at the text and you're thinking, Jared, that, that's a bit of a stretch. I mean, how do I get the interpretation, after all, that we have to live out the gospel when Paul really only says you have to proclaim and preach it? And it's a great question. As Paul has already given us an answer throughout all of 2 Timothy, and really even the latter part of verse 2. Think about it. Up until this point, Paul has told us that we need to guard the gospel, we need to suffer for the gospel, and we need to endure in the gospel. But let me ask you something. How in the world can you do those things if you aren't living out the gospel, if you aren't making it central in your life? How is that even possible? And just as important, how can you preach about that which you don't know or you haven't experienced? That'd be like trying to teach engineering or car maintenance, even though you've never been an engineer or a car mechanic. And you see, Paul really puts this into perspective. Again, look to verse 2. What does he say? He states that in proclaiming the word, one must be ready to do so both in and out of season. That is, we must always be ready to proclaim God's word, whether it seems easy to do so or whether it seems insurmountable and difficult. And family, let me tell you right now that if you aren't living out the gospel, if you aren't clinging to Christ, there's no way you can faithfully proclaim his word. 
You can't faithfully preach to others how the gospel provides hope and assurance during times of trial if you haven't seen how Christ does this in your own life. You can't faithfully show how the gospel provides us for our only true seasons of peace if you haven't taken the time to look to Jesus to understand he is the true meaning of peace. Simply put, you can't proclaim in someone's life that they are sinners in need of God's grace if you too haven't taken the time to understand that you are also a sinner in need of God's grace, in need of Jesus Christ. You see, in order to proclaim God's word, we have to be living it out. We have to be looking to Christ ourselves. And likewise, as Paul continues on in verse 2, he makes clear that there is a certain way to be proclaiming the gospel message. We must do so by reproving, by rebuking, by exhorting with complete patience in teaching. And what's important to notice here is that every one of these elements is connected. That is, it's not rebuke or reproof or exhort. It's all three of them when you look at the text. Now, of course, when it comes to rebuking and reproving, our goal is not to judge somebody else or to think ourselves better than them. Rather, in living out the gospel as we're called to do, we realize we're sinners in need of God's grace as well. So rather, our job is to bring a warning to a brother and sister in Christ and point them back towards Lord Jesus. Further yet, beyond this rebuke and reproval, we're to exhort, we're to encourage them. Think of it like this. What you don't want to do is tear someone down and look at them and be like, hey, brother, I know you're struggling with sin. You should knock that off. You should stop that. Hey, good luck with that, though, and walk off. No. Our job instead we again, we rebuke, we point each other towards Jesus when one has sinned and gone astray, and at the same time, we encourage each other with the gospel message showing how Jesus has paid for those sins. He's broken its power over us. We don't have to turn back to that anymore. We encourage them. And as we do this, Paul adds one more key ingredient to the mix in telling us we have to do it with patience and we have to do it with care and teaching. In fact, the Greek word Paul uses for patience is makrathumia, makrathumia. And it, it means having a spirit which never becomes irritated or despaired. Never irritated or despaired. In other words, Paul is telling us never to look at someone as beyond salvation. Rather, as Christians, we must patiently walk alongside others and disciple them because we believe in the changing power of Christ to break even the hardest of hearts and the most stubborn of men. We know he alone has the power to break and bring people back to him. And how do I know? Well, not only look at the biblical examples such as Paul, who once killed Christians, and now, in this very letter, is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, I look at my own story. That is, I too used to be lost. In fact, I grew up in a false religion named Mormonism, up until I became a teenager. And of course, when I was a teenager, I had all life figured out, so really I didn't need anyone or anything. I just refused to go to church, period, thinking I had better things to do with my life. Now, if you had asked me at that time, I would have told you I believed in God and Jesus Christ. Sure, I know who they are. I would have even told you my misguided beliefs at that time, my understandings of them. But the truth is, I didn't know God. My heart was far from him. And although nearly two decades went by and it was obvious I abandoned God, I was a lost cause. The reality is God never abandoned me, nor did he ever look at me that way. But you see, he put people in my life that kept doing what Timothy is telling us to do right here. They were patient. They were faithfully teaching and pointing me back to Christ every day, sometimes to what must have seemed like no avail to them. 
But eventually, God did what only he could do. He softened my heart. He made it into flesh. And so I finally warmed up to this idea of going back to church and decided to sit down with a pastor. And I have to admit, that was a very scary moment for me. I was very abrasive during that meeting, the first time I sat down, for I fully expected the pastor to do what so many others have done so well. That is to rebuke me for being involved in Mormonism and for not coming to church for so long. And let me tell you, people are really good at that part. We know how to rebuke. We know how to say, hey, mm, you messed up. But up until that point, I can tell you, nobody had really exhorted or encouraged me with the gospel message, the true gospel, to open up the Bible and show me Jesus, which is what I needed. And so as I sat in that pastor's office, I braced for what was to come. I expected to experience the same thing I always had when I considered going back to church, and that was rejection and rebuking with no exhortation and no hope of someone pointing me to Christ. But to my surprise, the pastor did everything Paul is telling us to do right here in this letter. He proclaimed the word. He actually took the time to pause and point out to me the true gospel of Jesus Christ, verse by verse. He stood firm in God's word. He didn't shy away from it. He didn't compromise on it. And when I went astray with my misguided understandings, he would correct. He would reprove me by bringing me back to the gospel. But I think what blew me away is he didn't look down upon me or resent me. He didn't look at me with all my weariness and my skepticism as beyond hope or salvation. Rather, he lovingly looked upon me as someone who truly needed to know Jesus for the first time in their lives. So week by week, he continued to meet with me, and in fact, we'd fellowship together over a meal and go over the gospel. And after several months of posing some of the hardest questions, and let me tell you all, I really put him through the ringer, and I, I drove him insane. I made him earn every bit of his pay, but he continued to proclaim the gospel with patience, with care, with teaching, doing what Paul has told us to do. And eventually, God did what only he could do, and that was to open my heart in my mind to see I needed Jesus, and so I gave my life to him. And again, brothers and sisters, the reason I even went down that route to give you a little bit, just a snippet of my testimony, is to show you that we have to follow what Paul is teaching right here. We have to proclaim God's word. We have to rebuke and reprove others and pointing them back to Christ. We can't compromise, but we also have to exhort and encourage them by teaching, by discipling them to see the amazing gospel truths with all patience Knowing our God, again, can change the hardest of hearts, just as he did with myself, just as he did with Paul. And again, why do we have to do this? Why is it so important? Well, because, again, look at your text. Look at verses 3 and 4. We see how Paul warns Timothy that soon the time is coming when people are going to fall away. They're going to fall away from sound teaching and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Worse yet, Paul states it's not like they're just going to stop believing altogether. Now they're going to take those beliefs and put them in something else. They're going to put them into myths and fables. And if you want an example, or you think I'm just playing crazy, how about the Big Bang Theory, where mankind has tried to explain away how the universe came into existence without God, because it just, it just had to. I'm pretty sure that's not the only myth you've heard, because how often have we heard the fable that, you know, God, God can only love you if you're good, so why bother? Or, or perhaps, you know what? You should try her, uh, a lot harder to earn his love. Why don't you try and earn your own salvation? Family, <laughs> these myths, these dangers, they're ever-present. And as such, Paul, he warns us, he warns us in verse 5 to be sober-minded, to endure suffering, 
to do the work of an evangelist in proclaiming the word, to fulfill our ministry. In other words, Paul's calling Timothy and us to live in a state of alertness. Avoid the false teachings and the teachers that are all around. And in fact, isn't that really the good mark of a good shepherd? One that always has a watchful eye for the dangers around them and their flock and continually cares for them by feeding them the word of God? Now, with that said, being a shepherd and a minister isn't easy. And Paul tells Timothy and us, we're going to endure suffering. Because the reality is that with becoming a Christian and ministering to others, there will be seasons where you're going to have to endure it. We need look no further than our Lord himself to see how he was broken, beaten, and bloodied up on a cross when he came to minister to us. And as Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 24, a student is not above his teacher. And further in John chapter 15, verse 18, that if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. In other words, we're going to face times of suffering, but Paul reminds us to endure that suffering for the sake of the gospel because we know what awaits us. And that's an eternity of Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul then tells Timothy and really us today that we must do the work of an evangelist thus going on to fulfill one's ministry. And now I know some of you, when you hear, hey, we need to be evangelizing, you think, oh, no, that's, that's, that's not my forte. That's not what I like to do. I'm not a people person. I'll leave that to the professionals. Maybe you think that isn't your spiritual gifting. But the truth is, that couldn't be further from the truth, guys. Because nothing is more critical than spreading the word of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what we're called to do in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. The Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples. And brothers and sisters, our encouragement is the gospel because Jesus told us, he already assured us in Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, that when the time comes, the Holy Spirit will give us what we need to say. You don't have to worry about that. God's got you. He always has. And thus we can be confident in proclaiming the gospel to others and carrying out Paul's final charge to Timothy and to us. And so if you're taking notes, I think this is probably the first point we can draw from our text in that we need to be alert and boldly proclaim the gospel with patience and care. Again, be alert and boldly proclaim the gospel with patience and with care. Go ahead and continue our study and move on to verses 6 through 8. So again, break out your Bibles. We'll read this together. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You know, as we look at this set of verses, what we get to see is how Paul, he moved from this final charge of proclaim the gospel to really it's his final triumphant confession. And that confession starts right here in verse 6 as Paul discusses how he's being poured out like a drink offering. And of course that alludes to the Old Testament when they would have many offerings. They'd have animal sacrifices, they'd have food offerings, and they would have drink offerings. And you see, what Paul's trying to communicate, what he's stating here is that he's given everything that he has, every last drop of himself, to Lord Jesus. He had given his, his mind, his body, his money. He'd given his devotion. And now, frankly, all that was left to give was his life. And I think what's humbling about that is Paul doesn't blink. 
And he doesn't hesitate at that thought. Rather, he's gladly offering himself up. In fact, in verse 7, Paul drives this home by talking about how he has finished the fight. He's finished the race. He's kept the faith. And with each of these analogies, I want you to notice a couple of things. And the first is, I want you to notice how Paul describes each one in a singular manner with the before it. In other words, there's truly only one fight, only one race, only one faith. And that's living our lives in accordance with God's will and proclaiming the gospel message as Paul has done. Now, the second observation I want to bring forth is that running a race and fighting a fight, that requires a lot of hard work and dedication. I mean, professional athletes, they train for months and years to prepare their bodies and their minds for what it is about to endure. They certainly don't just haphazardly jump into a race or a fight. They prepare and they pace themselves because, let's put it this way, it is so darn easy to start a race and to start a fight, but the difficulty comes in finishing it. Likewise, when it comes to finishing the only true race and fight of our lives and living out and proclaiming the gospel, we have to realize that, again, we have to cling to Jesus in these moments. We have to prepare our minds, we have to prepare our bodies, and we have to be in the Word of God. We have to be with our Father in Heaven. Again, a good marathon runner and a fighter, they need a trainer, and we have the best one in the world in the Holy Spirit, so cling to Him. Now, the third observation I want to bring forth from this verse is I want you to take notice of how Paul, he mentions finishing the race and the fight. He doesn't talk about winning it, does he? And that's because the race and the fight have already been won by Lord Jesus. He's already conquered sin. He's already conquered death on the cross. He's already restored our broken relationship with God the Father by being raised from the grave. And because of this, when we run the race and we fight the fight, all we have to do is look to and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And stop and think about that and how significant that really is. Because it means that when we take body blows from being in this fight... When we sprain our ankles, when we talk back to our wife and she beats us up, sorry, I shouldn't have said that one. Um, when we fall down during the race, guys, we can rest assured that Jesus is right there to pick us up and carry us to the finish line. And how do we know that's true? How do we know we can cling to that? Well, look at all scriptures in the life of Paul. He should have been executed many times to this point. In fact, they tried numerous times to stone him and leave him for naught, but yet, the Lord carried him through. He gave him strength to accomplish the Lord's will. And so if you're taking notes, I think this is the second point we can draw from our text, and that to finish the race and keep the faith, cling to Jesus. Again, to finish the race and keep the faith, cling to Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, if that isn't humbling enough, Paul tells us that when we make it to the finish line, by God's grace, therein lies an award, and that's the crown of righteousness. And this crown won't be like the all leaves that faded in Paul's time, or like even the trophies that are going to rust in our time. Rather, our crown and our award will be one of everlasting life in the presence of Lord Jesus himself. Amen. Now, family, I, I could spend a heck of a lot more time on these verses. Trust me, I had a hard time cutting down what I had. They're so rich in gospel truths. But for the sake of time, 
we need to move ahead and finish reading this chapter where verses 9 through 22, because there's a couple other critical, important things I want to point out to you. So again, let's break out our Bibles and let's finish this chapter. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychius I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he has strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Anasphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. So we now get to Paul's personal closing message. We see in verse 9 that Paul's encouraging Timothy to come see him soon. And that's because Paul knew his time was short. He knew that he didn't have very long. And really what he's asking for is a, a brother, a fellow worker in Christ to come and encourage him. And you see what that shows us right there, just looking at that alone, is that Paul wasn't this one-man superhuman show. It wasn't like he didn't need help from anybody else. Rather, it shows that Paul needed the encouragement of his brothers, of his sisters in Christ. He needed them to encourage him with the Word of God. He needed them to continue to proclaim the gospel to him. And this highlights for us today that of an apostle such as Paul, who had seen the Lord Jesus himself on Damascus Road, and who had proclaimed the gospel so boldly, if he needed his brothers and sisters to come alongside him, I promise you, we do too. We need to be encouraging one another until the glorious day comes when we are in front of Lord Jesus. Now, the other thing I want to point out comes from verse 13 in this personal message. And that's where Paul asked Timothy to bring his cloak and his books, and above all else, his parchments. And while it seems obvious why Paul would want a cloak, it's getting near wintertime in this cold, damp, rotting cell, and why he'd want his books, I find it more humbling that above all else, again, the most important thing he wanted was his parchments. And why is that? You see, the parchments would have been his version of the Old Testament, his scriptures, the only thing available at that time. So in other words, Paul's not only stating he wants a friend to come encourage him with gospel truths, he also wants his scripture so he can likewise continue to encourage himself by reading the gospel truths. Would you and I long for the same thing under those circumstances? Now, as we move on, the final thing I want to point out here is how in this personal message, in verses 16 through 18, Paul boasts of how the Lord stood by him when no one else did. For you see, in a typical Roman trial, they had a preliminary examination, and that was to formulate the charges against the defendant, kind of like we do today. And what Paul, what he's doing here, what he's really saying is that when that happened, when he went through his preliminary trial, his preliminary hearing, 
everybody abandoned him. And you can imagine, that must have crushed him. And yet, Paul doesn't lament on that fact. Instead, he took joy in knowing that even though the world and his friends had abandoned him, Lord Jesus never would. Lord Jesus stood beside him and filled him with his Holy Spirit, giving Paul all the strength he needed to stand firm and proclaim the gospel message to the court and everyone that he could. And Paul took joy in knowing that although the world would attack him, although it would condemn him, Christ would rescue him and Christ would justify him. All he needed to do was keep his eyes fixed on Jesus and proclaim the gospel. And as a result, he would be safely brought into the heavenly kingdom. And it wouldn't be because of anything he did, but rather all because of what Jesus did, because the Lord is faithful to fulfill his promises. For the Lord tells us himself in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so if you're taking notes, I think a final point we can draw from our text here this morning is, the Lord is faithful to fulfill his promises and deliver us. Again, the Lord is faithful to fulfill his promises and deliver us. As we come to the end of Paul's letter and his benediction, we see him say his final greetings and his goodbyes, especially to Timothy. He prays for him and really for the Lord to help him carry out his ministry duties. And just as important, that very last verse, it's actually plural because he's changing it. What he's saying is, I'm praying for Timothy for you to carry out your ministry duties. But really when he says, the Lord's grace be with us all, he's saying that to each and every one of us. And that brings us to grasp our application really from this chapter. This is where we can start to hone in on what's the big message. If you remember at the beginning when we reviewed the first five verses, because there was a lot there, Paul gave Timothy a charge to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. He then told him to be sober-minded and alert, as many are going to fall away to, to false teachings, making it clear all the more that he must proclaim the gospel to himself and to others. Paul then shifted gears in verses 6 through 8 by giving his own confession of how he has given everything he has for the gospel, how he has kept the faith, how he's finished the race and the fight. But as we dug in and we studied and we soon discovered, we found out that Paul didn't accomplish those things because he was super awesome. No, he made it to the end only because he clung to the gospel and Lord Jesus for dear life. As he proclaimed it to himself, as he proclaimed it to others, he made it only to the end because of Jesus. And as we just went over in verses 9 through 22, we saw how Paul's final request was really to ask for another brother in Christ to come alongside him to encourage him in gospel truths. And how beyond his cloak, what he really wanted was his, his parchments, his version of the scriptures to stay surrounded by the gospel message. And finally, we then see how Paul rejoiced in knowing that Lord Jesus stood beside and strengthened him when everybody else abandoned him. He rejoiced knowing God was faithful and would soon bring him home to his glorious presence. And so these final words of Paul's life to Timothy and to us culminate in our main application. So if you're taking notes, the main application, if you get nothing else from what I've preached up here, proclaim the gospel to yourself and others. Again, proclaim the gospel to yourself and to others. You see, the reality of it is, those of us who have accepted Jesus into our lives know that we are only saved because the gospel was first proclaimed to us. We didn't just wake up one day and choose God. We kept choosing sin. I kept choosing sin. And yet God first chose to act in our lives by giving us his gospel and sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins and to impute his righteousness to us. 
He then gave us his Holy Spirit to open our hearts and to receive this good news as God proclaimed his word to us through his scriptures and through other brothers and sisters in Christ. And you see, the reason Paul's very last words hinge on this principle is because proclaiming the gospel and evangelizing is critical for every Christian to do. Because it's through the proclamation of the word of God that he opens up hearts and draws people to himself as only God can do. Just as critical reminds us of these truths ourselves, that we constantly need to hear it. Let's face it, we're forgetful people. That's the story of the scriptures, how people forget what God has done time and time again. They turn to their own selfish sins and desires. We turn to our own selfish sins and desires. And that's why we have to proclaim the gospel to ourselves. That's why we have to proclaim it to others, and we have to do it daily. And Paul knew this because the Lord had first acted in his life by revealing and proclaiming himself to him on Damascus Road. Paul knew that he needed to stay constantly in the scriptures and in prayer. He knew he needed other brothers and sisters to speak gospel truths in his life as the dangers were constantly around him. He further knew what Timothy and you and I would face. And as such, we should take heed of this truth and constantly be in the word of God, praying and proclaiming the gospel. So brothers and sisters, proclaim the gospel. Proclaim it by reading the word of God, by getting in prayer, by building that relationship with God. Turn to him. He's already there. He's waiting for you. Proclaim it by preaching it to yourself, the gospel truths, and by proclaiming it to believers and non-believers alike. Because believe me, we as believers need to hear it just as much as non-believers do. I realize for some of you sitting here, you may be thinking to yourself, that's nice, that's well, Jared, I appreciate that, but how does this work for me if I've never truly believed in the gospel? What if I haven't accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior? Then what am I supposed to do? And if that's you this morning, I want to simply ask you to come find me after service. Come find Pastor Neil or one of the elders. We would love to proclaim the gospel, to walk alongside you, to pray with you, to ask the Lord to open up your heart to receive him. That would be a privilege for us. So this said, I can think of no better way than ending in prayer as we go to our Father in heaven, thanking him for his saving gospel, for his saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's thank him that he first acted to open our hearts and to receive this gospel and have it proclaimed in our lives. And let's pray for him to open up other hearts this very day to receive his gospel. Well, let's also ask him for the strength to help us live out the gospel in our lives. Let's go to our Father in heaven in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these gospel truths. Thank you that you first proclaimed the gospel in our lives. Thank you that you sent your son on the cross, that he took upon all our sins, and that you rose him and gave us assurance. Father, thank you for this good news when all we had was the bad news of our sin. But instead, you gave us Jesus. You imputed his righteousness to us, giving us justification. And so, Lord, help us to focus on these truths. Help us to cling on these truths. Help us to cling to Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, fill us up with you. Help us to just look to you in everything that we do. Help us to proclaim it to ourselves. Help us to proclaim it to others, the saving gospel message. 
And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that hasn't heard your words, that don't understand it, that they wouldn't leave this place without coming to see us. That, Lord, you would open their hearts as only you could do to receive you. God, we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.